2: Hey, before we get started, quick word from a sponsor, FreshBooks. FreshBooks is a dead simple cloud accounting software that's saving millions of freelancers from the pain, the misery, the agony of dealing with their day-to-day admin and you, paperwork. You
3: know personally about this, Max, because you handle this here at Longform.
2: It's a scourge. Yeah. It's a scourge on my life. And uh, FreshBooks, it makes it a lot easier.
3: So the, among the things, many things that they can handle for you, um, invoicing.
2: 30 seconds, man. 30 seconds. 30
3: seconds in Thirty seconds in invoice. Um, they also can send an automatic reminder if someone does not pay said invoice. And my personal favorite, you can link your business card so that when you have expenses, they magically just appear in fresh books. You don't have to keep weird crumpled receipts in your pockets.
2: Give yourself a break. Accounting does not need to be an awful, horrible nightmare. For a 30-day free trial, go to freshbooks.com/slash longform and enter longform in the little how did you hear about us section that'll be helping the show, which starts right now. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts Aaron Lammer and Emma Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey Max. Hey, you guys. Who'd you talk to? You were
3: just in LA this week. Just I, back. I,
2: I just got off a plane. I just got off a red eye. I am. Uh, you don't look it. You look great. <laughs> Thanks, man. You look fresh. Feel like crap. Uh, yes, I was in LA and I went to the offices of the newly launched Ringer. Uh, they've got offices on like a movie lot. Yeah. It looks like a movie set. It's like in an old, like, fake motel. And I talked to John Favreau, who. Uh, is a columnist at The Ringer, he writes about politics, he does a podcast for them called Keeping It 1600.
3: But before he was a member of the media, he was uh, the chief speechwriter for our president. So basically our our perception of what America is is uh, via our guest tonight.
2: Pretty much, yeah. He shaped the narrative of America for like eight years. Uh, And then he left in 2013, and since then he has been writing. So we talked a little bit about what it was like to sort of switch sides. I look forward
3: to listening to this. We also
2: talked about that Ben Rhodes profile.
3: Well, that uh, and that was, I think, what stirred my interest in uh, this idea of like the nonfiction that is American reality or yeah. fiction, yeah. depending on your viewpoint. He uh, he had some thoughts on that topic. Well, I, I, I can say with uh, honesty, I look forward to listening to that because I have not heard it because you just walked in here like thirty minutes ago. That's <laughs> true. Uh, how about sponsors? Aaron, we've got a, a familiar sponsor on the show this week, but I hear they're up to something new. Yeah, it's uh, it's another twist. <laughs> Balechimp is Evan's mother-in-law. <laughs> In addition to being a non-blood relative of uh, Evan, uh, the MailChimp Chimp has a new project out, and that is called Freddie & Co. It's an online store created by the folks at MailChimp. They collaborate with creative people to make fun, unique products for good causes. 100% of the net proceeds go to charity. So this is how it works. People sell stuff on MailChimp. They pick the best of that stuff. They put it in one place. When they sell out of an item, they pick another one. Um, so it's like kind of a cool art gallery, uh, e-commerce, all kinds of stuff going on. In place. And get this, you guys. When they sell out of something, like if they, uh, if you want to know what the next
2: product in Freddie and Co. is going to they be, they call you. They call you. you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They send you a carrier pigeon. Uh, they will send you an email newsletter. That's correct.
3: What's in store? You can sign up for it at the website, which is what? Freddie F r-e-d-d-i-e and a-n-d dot co co freddie and dot co uh you can get on the newsletter there it's really excellent this is just another great project from mailchimp thank you mailchimp and now here's max with john favreau
2: well hey john favreau hello thank you for uh coming on the podcast thanks for having me uh, I think this is the first time in long-form podcast history that we are interviewing someone on their
1: birthday. Oh, that's thank you very much. So happy birthday to you, sir! I'm 35 today.
2: Yeah, and yeah. I'm old. You spent your twenties doing like uh, very impressive,
1: like uh, like world-changing things. I had no life in my twenties. Yes,
2: I spent my twenties like mostly
1: drunk on a couch. See, that's what I've been doing in my thirties. Yeah, well, you know, I'm glad that, I'm glad <laughs> I'm that you got that experience. But I'm I feel to like reverse it now.
2: I have no I have no access to what like uh, wonderkind life
1: is like yes that's a word that i think i've definitely lost today that's what i'm sure. saying i think you're done like <laughs> no, no longer more, no more wonder can you're just a middle-aged I, man I, i'm now. just an average middle-aged man <laughs> who's just half employed <laughs> just doing my podcast hobby just hanging around la barely get dressed some days that's that's where i am right now what is your
2: ringer involvement these days
1: um so bill simmons reached out a couple months ago now uh to see if i wanted to join him on his podcast and along with Dan Pfeiffer, who he's known for a little while too. So Dan and I did his podcast and Bill said, why don't you guys do your own podcast? Do you um, think that was like a tryout? It was a try well, he said that. <laughs> he said, yeah, well, let's try out a podcast. If you guys fail miserably, we'll move on. Yeah. But um, he gave us a chance and it was unbelievably fun. I had a great time doing it. And then you know, he said, why do you think about writing for us? And I thought it would be great to write for an organization that was based in Los Angeles. So I could leave my house where i work by myself every day just me and my dog and uh and come to an office and see people once in a (laughs) while and i also just i've always been a fan of bill and a lot of the writers that he's worked with over the years and it's always nice to write about politics for an audience that isn't necessarily a bunch of political nerds within Washington, right?
2: I, I assume that it must be nice to have a little distance from—
1: it, It's nice to have distance, and I also think it's just it improves your writing to try to make it as accessible to like, the most broadest audience possible.
2: I want to talk about this transition you made to media, because I think it's an sure. interesting one. But uh, there was another type of writing you were doing. Uh, that was intended for broad audiences, right that, that I feel like we should talk about the speeches, the speeches, yes, yes, the speeches quickly, I just want to kind of like run through your sort of backstory uh graduated holy cross two thousand three, yes, valedictorian, I was. Uh, delivered a hell of a speech that I read last night. Thank you. Do you feel good about that speech? Like in hindsight?
1: You know, it's one of those things where anything you write when you were younger, you read it and and cringe. But I thought, you know, I I hit most of the points I wanted to make. <laughs> <laughs> it was. Uh, I ended up giving the commencement at Holy Cross a couple of years ago, so I it was for the first time I went back and read the my old valedictorian speech. It is funny that a lot of my thoughts about politics and especially like. Barack Obama's thoughts about politics like it 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 makes sense that we were a good match because I think we we think similarly about politics in public life and sort of a a grassroots ground-up community organizing view of the world which uh was instilled in me at Holy Cross that's why I have that view of the world uh it was it was all the Jesuits (laughs) thanks thanks to the Jesuits it It was thanks to the Jesuits and that
2: is the thrust of that speech is like go out and do something for the world
1: Right, go and do something for the world and also don't necessarily believe that you can change the world overnight or that you can change the world alone and don't think that you're not going to face a lot of cynicism and a lot of challenges and a lot of bad days, but that you go out there and you do the best you can and you kind of put your shoulder to the wheel and if you make some progress, you make some progress and that's all any of us can do. All any of us can do is try, but you at least have to try.
2: The other theme of that speech is... I'm going to Washington yeah I'm, I'm doing it <laughs> and you had that you had that job already
1: with Kerry I got it the night before actually really so I interned for John Kerry my spring semester of my junior year because they had a Washington DC internship program at Holy Cross so I was interned in the press office um, in, in John Kerry's press office in 02 and it was while they were preparing for the presidential campaign so it was exciting because i was with his communications director, speechwriter, press secretary, political director, all in that office in the senate office and they were all getting excited about the the race. And so i was too. So when i left and i went back to do my senior year at Holy Cross, i bugged his communications director David Wade like every month with an email, can i get a job? Can i get a job? I'll do anything, whatever you want. And he would write me back like once every couple months, which was nice enough. It's better than i do sometimes with people. And uh the night before graduation, I had no job and I was still waiting for a job offer from the Kerry campaign. And I remember we were at the group house that I lived in, uh, called the crack house with my, with my uh, 11 other roommates Classy. and all of our parents and family. And we were all about to go out to dinner cause it was the night before graduation. And I get this call and it's from David Wade and he said, okay, um, good news is I think we can get you something on the campaign, but the bad news is we just, we can't pay anything on this campaign. And so maybe you could just be an intern and everyone's watching me on the phone talk to him and it was like it was almost like that scene in in uh, national lampoon's christmas vacation when he gets the gift certificate to the jelly of the month Club, <laughs> as opposed to his christmas bonus and everyone's just like staring at him before he flips out so i was about to do that and then suddenly he's like you know what i'm just fucking with you he's like we're gonna we're gonna pay you something he's like it won't be much but we will pay you something at so least it have, will be a you'll job. you'll have a real job you'll be an employee of the campaign you'll be a press assistant um which means you know i did press clips at Got up at like four in the morning to send around the press clips to the rest of the office and I had two weeks to move to Washington. And so I graduated and then two weeks later my parents helped move me down to a dingy basement apartment on Capitol Hill. So
2: you're with the Kerry campaign. They enter into the primaries. Dean has a bunch of momentum. Right. Seems like maybe it's not going to work out for Kerry. <laughs> they think it's kind of fallen off, and but they need a like a deputy speechwriter, right? That was the, yeah. and so they're like, well, this isn't really going to work out. Let's take the kid who we're paying like twenty grand. That was it, and uh, we'll throw him in that job because it's not going to last very they long. They literally
1: could not find a deputy speechwriter that would join the Kerry campaign <laughs> when it looked like Howard Dean was was going to win. And also, we had no money. You know, the the donors were not donating. There had just been a huge staff shakeup. campaign manager was fired. My boss, Robert Gibbs, had quit. I remember Stephanie Cutter, who took over for Gibbs, sat there and said to Andre Cherney, who was the chief speechwriter, well, why don't you just take Fabs? He seems like a good writer. Like, we don't have to pay him more. Just go for it. And that was it. I became deputy speechwriter.
2: And then Dean screams. And
1: then Dean screams. This is a great great day in Favreau history. It's funny to think that a scream from Howard Dean ended his presidential campaign when today, you know— Trump's like you know having a literal dick measuring contest on <laughs> stage in national debate. Totally kosher. But the scream that was that was too much. All right, you get
2: that job. Now mm-hmm. it's your job to start crafting these things. Did you have a feel then for that process? Like, how did you start writing speeches for a
1: presidential candidate when you were what twenty four? I was twenty two at that point. It's absurd. I mean, the first speech I'd ever written was I wrote that speech at Holy Cross. And so I sort of knew how to put together a speech in general. I had also at that point written opinion columns all the times for the, the college newspaper. Right. So I sort of started to understand how to write in that voice. And I always loved writing. And then I sat next to the speechwriter for Kerry for a couple months before I got that job. So I saw how the process worked, that he did a draft, that the chief strategist would weigh in, that the policy people would weigh in, that John Kerry would weigh in. And I'd see the draft go through all its different revisions. And... And I started understanding the different policies that John Kerry was out there talking about. Mm -hmm. So when it came time to do my first speech, which was, I don't know, something about wind power in Iowa, I think (laughs) it was at a wind farm, it might have been ethanol, I don't know what it was. I got the basic idea of how to put a speech together.
2: Mm -hmm. And did you have access to, or did you feel like you needed access to the way that Kerry thought?
1: At that time, when I first learned speech writing, I did not yet understand the value of knowing what the person you're writing for thinks, which seems silly (laughs) and sort of obvious. But that's just the way it was on the Kerry campaign. The person that knows John Kerry better than anyone else and knows his voice better than anyone else is David Wade, who had been his speechwriter for a long time. But the role that he had on the campaign was communications director, press secretary. So he had already sort of moved out, but he was the only like John Kerry whisperer on the campaign. Bob Shrum, who's a longtime Democratic consultant, sort of came in and he was doing some speech writing. Andre Cherney was doing some speech writing. But it's not like Andre and Shrum would sit there with John Kerry for hours, like, trying to tease out his thoughts. They would put together what they thought was the best, you know, the the best message, Mm -hmm. the sharpest speech, and and then they'd sort of go from there. I never spent a long time with Kerry asking him, oh, what do you think about the speech? Uh, It was always, okay, speechwriters, here's the topic. Go write something about it. Send it in, and then we'll we'll tell you what John Kerry thinks of it. And then – Kerry loses so Kerry lost obviously in 2004 in November and we were in Boston so I was back home yeah and I remember being at it was a weird day the day he lost because I was at my house in North Reading where I had grown up by myself my parents went to work and I was just sitting there like back where I started (laughs) Watching this on TV and then we went to um, Faneuil Hall and he gave his concession speech. And Did you write that? I don't know. I might have helped edit it or something like that, but I wasn't in charge. That's got to be right. a tough speech to write. Yeah. Oh, really tough. But anyway, I thought maybe I wouldn't be, I wouldn't go into politics anymore. I'd be done with it. Because it was like the loss was just, and too I was much. very cynical about it. Like the the, the fact that George Bush had such low approval rating, but he still won, and sort of like the tearing down of John Kerry contributed to that, and the Swift Boat veterans and all the awful things that were. So said basically, about
2: it him. took like fifteen months for you to go from optimistic valedictorian yeah. to like cynical about this, all of it.
1: Yeah, cynical. Like this is <laughs> crazy. I don't want to be part of this anymore. And my parents had wanted me to go to law school. They wanted me to go to law school right after college, but because my parents are so wonderful and supportive said, go do this campaign thing. So they were like, you should take the LSATs and just do this now. At the time then, John Kerry was reaching out to ask if I would stay on as his speechwriter. And I was like, I don't know if I wanna do this. I don't know if this is, you know, and and they were like, well, it'll just be you and him now. You'll finally get access to him. It'll be great, so whatever. And then I get an instant message from Robert Gibbs who is now Barack Obama's communications director, Senator Barack Obama's communications Got director, it. because he won the Senate seat. And he said, uh, we're looking for a speechwriter. Would you be interested in having breakfast with Obama and, and seeing if you'd, if you'd be interested in this?
2: And this is after he gave the oh, speech right. at the convention. Yes.
1: So my first question to gives is, why does he need a speechwriter?
2: Right, because he wrote that one himself.
1: Yes. And Gibbs said, look, if, he, if there were 48 hours in a day, he wouldn't need a speechwriter. He would write it all himself. He doesn't think he needs a speechwriter. But he does because he's not going to have time to write. And he was – I mean, Obama writing the 2004 convention speech was him – apparently he would, like, duck into the bathroom at the Illinois State Senate and, and you know, write out a little bit there and squeeze in some at three in the morning. And, I mean, he really had to find all kinds of time as a state senator to write that speech. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine if you're a senator with a national profile, like, you don't have the time to write a big speech or any speech at that point. So I went into the Senate, Obama's first week in office. And I remember we had breakfast, the two of us and Gibbs. And it was this very easy interview where Obama was like, tell me about your life. Where would you grow up? Where would you go to school? Why are you interested in politics? Tell me about your the community stuff you did in Worcester. And we just sort of had a great conversation. And then he ended by saying, um, I don't think I, I need a speechwriter still, but you seem nice enough, so let's give it a whirl. <laughs> so that was the ringing endorsement I got from Barack Obama.
2: If it never happened with Kerry, if you never got to that place where you like really understood kind of like how he saw the world and the way he thought, how quickly did it happen where you did have access and you did have a handle on that with Obama?
1: Very quickly, because Obama wanted it to be that way. And it wasn't just because of me. It was just he—this is a guy who wrote a book— Um, wrote a fairly famous speech and he was not going to just give up control of his words to some 22 year old kid that he just met. (laughs) So he was going to make sure that he put a lot of time into this. What was the first thing you wrote for him? It was about the nomination of Condoleezza Rice to be secretary of state. And he was going to speak on this. And he sat down and talked to me for like 10 minutes about what he wanted to say. I took a bunch of notes and I walked out of the office That night, we were in a transition office in the Senate. It's like basement office. And he calls out after me. He's like, hey, Favs. And that was the first time he called me Favs, which is a nickname that Alyssa Mastromonico, our scheduler, had been calling me. And so Obama just decided to use this. (laughs) So that that became my new name. And he said, "Um, come back here for a second. Like, I know this is your first night writing for me. I know this is the first thing you've ever written for me. And so I know that you must be nervous. But I just want you to know I'm a writer, too. So I get it. I get that sometimes the muse strikes and sometimes doesn't. So if you can go home and write this, great. If not, come back in tomorrow and we'll figure it out. Went home, wrote it, sent it back to him. And then he comes over to my desk with the speech and he has a few edits and he's like, I just want to go through some of these edits and make sure you're okay with this. Like, are you, so I did this for this reason. Are you okay with that? And I'm like, yeah, buddy, <laughs> you're Barack Obama. <laughs> but that's that's how we worked together for eight years. I mean, that was the beginning of a collaboration, right? Like I would write something, he would talk to me about what he wanted to say. We would edit, we'd revise together. And I'd listen to him talk. I'd listen, I'd go to all of his town halls. I'd, I'd read all the transcripts of his interviews or I'd go to the interviews. I just tried to familiarize myself with the way he spoke and ultimately thought as best I could. Um And because during those two years in the Senate office he wasn 't as busy as he would later become a, as a candidate and a president, I had the time, and so I just got the time to know him, like you get the time to know anyone else hey i 'm going to put John on hold
2: for just a second, tell you about a couple of sponsors that are making today 's show possible. The first one, aaron it 's one of your favorite companies. I know that 's to be true it 's audible.
3: I want to talk about Audible, and I don't want anyone else talking about Audible, because Audible is my thing. They simply have the best selection of audiobooks anywhere in the world. Over 250,000 titles, including many people who've been on this show reading their own works. Look into their soul. Hear their voices. Rejoice. (laughs) Rejoice.
2: You're not going to get a better pitch than that. Go to audible.com slash longform. That's audible.com slash longform. You can get a 30-day free trial for free right now. You can peer into your favorite writer's
3: souls. You'll be supporting the show, and you will also get lots of books to listen to.
2: Also sponsoring the show this week, Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way, the best way, the only way to build a website.
3: I wish that we had redesigned our website in Squarespace because it would be done by now. I really hope our developers are not listening. Uh, Squarespace. It's simply the simplest, simple, simple, simply simple, simple way to put up a website, whether it's for a bakery or your band or you're selling T-shirts online or just about any kind of project. They've got great templates for you. You can get a free domain name with if you sign up for a year. um, They've got all the stuff you need to build a professional website without knowing a line of code. I highly recommend them.
2: We have used them multiple times. It is always easy. It always comes out looking great. You look like a pro, and you don't need to know any code. Go to squarespace.com, enter the uh, offer code LONGFORM, and you'll get 10% off that first purchase. Again, that's squarespace.com. Use the offer code LONGFORM. Squarespace. Set your website apart. Now, let's get back john faber how long would it take you to write those speeches
1: i'm a slow writer i'm not a there are some people who can just churn and i'm so envious of them and just not worry if the draft is perfect they just they send it out and it's great i am a bit of a perfectionist so i will stare at a blank screen for hours at a time i can't write another section first i have to start at the beginning and go to the end
2: do you know where you're going to end
1: Sometimes I know where I'm going to end, yeah. And even, even then, I still can't write the end first. Like, I have to write the whole thing in order. I don't do outlines, really, either. I take notes a lot. So I'll, like, take a bunch of notes. I'll sort of, like, highlight things I want to think about. And then I'll just stare and stare and stare. And at one point, it'll come to me. And then I'll start writing. But it's a slow process. So, I, you know, I think that night probably took me a couple hours. I probably stayed up. No, I, I, I got faster as, as, as I went on. But, um, but yeah, I'm pretty slow.
2: I mean, I understand you go to town halls, you listen to him talk, Mm -hmm. you spend a lot of time, but there's something that's hard for me to just like grok about the process of starting to see the world through somebody's eyes. Yeah.
1: You know, I, I remember when it was, he gave a commencement in 2005 at Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois, Galesburg, he had visited during his Senate run. Um, Because it was a place where the Maytag plant used to be in Illinois and Maytag had moved to Mexico and took a lot of jobs with it. So Galesburg was one of these manufacturing towns who had sort of been hollowed out by globalization. And it's it's funny thinking about this now because we're dealing with Trump and obviously the downsides of globalization contributed in some ways to his success or the success of populists in general. And Obama, way back in 2004 and 2005, had been thinking about this, or what are the consequences of globalization? What happens to the economy when the middle class gets hollowed out? And he wanted to go to Galesburg and use the commencement at Knox to talk about this, to talk about what this new economy looks like and how these students who are graduating from this place that used to have all these jobs that have disappeared, how they can succeed, and talk about two different visions of the world and two different ways to do that, and the Republican side, the Republican vision at the time, represented by George Bush, which he called the ownership society, was to give more tax breaks to those who were fairly wealthy and cut off regulations. And then this would create wealth. And that but yet there was another view. And that view is supported through all of history that we invest in education and innovation and infrastructure. Right. So he was all excited about this. thought it was going to be a really big speech for him and asked me, you know, so we talked about it for like half hour, hour. We had our policy person who came in who was like kind of an expert on economic globalization and all that kind of stuff and i went off and i wrote that speech and as i was writing that draft like something clicked and i started getting excited writing the draft and because part of it was talking about our history as a country and what we've always done together and how we've always you know risen to meet these challenges and and collective action and all the other things that barack obama would go on to talk about a lot so I got really excited when I finished the draft and I sent it to him and he didn't make a lot of edits and he delivered the speech and it was one of the first kind of national speeches since the convention speech that he got a lot of plaudits for. And I remember him coming into the Senate office and saying, he's like, you're not so bad, man. (laughs) He's like, that was pretty, that was pretty good. And I just felt like, okay, we clicked a little bit there. It's interesting
2: because that sort of leads to the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about, about the speech writing. So, Part of it is trying to find the way that he sees the world, but also part of the way that he sees the world as a writer uh, and just it kind of seems like the way he's wired is through stories, like yeah. through narratives. And I'm interested in how the both of you thought about those speeches in terms of narrative. Like we talk to journalists on the show, uh-huh. right? We talk to magazine writers mostly. Right. And a lot of what we're talking about is you've got all of this information, reams and reams, notebooks and notebooks and notebooks, and you got to figure out a way to whittle all that down into a story. You guys have, like, endless material. Right. Uh, America. Right. right? Like, uh, pretty broad themes. Pretty broad themes. Pretty broad themes. And And I'm interested in how you think about and how you guys thought about narrative and story. Like, how you figure out how to take something so big and make a story out of it.
1: I would say that's something that both Obama and I learned together. He wrote a book, Dreams for My Father, that was rich with narrative and story, but it was also a very long book, and he was basically able to tell the story of his entire life um, in very vivid scenes, right? When you deliver a speech, and increasingly more so today, you're delivering it to an audience that probably has a shorter attention span than they even did a year ago. And so, a short, and so attention spans are shortening. I don't think that takes away from the power and the importance of narrative. So the question is, how do you tell a story that is succinct and simple as possible and sort of fit everything into it? And so that's where we ended up with a lot of these sort of like grand sweep of America stories that can kind of go through American history very quickly in a couple paragraphs, basically but sort of touch on all the big moments in history and the moments where we've made progress against all odds, which is Barack Obama's story, right? Who are you writing for? Everyone. Like, did you have someone in mind? The person I always have in mind when I'm writing is someone who is somewhat interested in politics, but not a political nerd, not someone who follows politics too intently, someone who might be cynical about politics, right? And might look at it from afar and think, it never really works. People always seem to be disappointed. Everyone's always yelling all the time. Like, I don't follow all the debates, but it always seems like – and it seems like Republicans and Democrats are sort of the same. Maybe I believe more of the things that the Democrats believe and believe less about the things the Republicans, but Democrats engage in some of these tactics and they yell too and they take cheap shots and all that kind of shit. But I'm still interested and I watch the news once in a while. And um, and I'm sort of open to hearing kind of new voices and new thoughts and new ideas. That's, that's the person that I'm always trying to write for. And what I learned from Obama most of all is it's important to make an argument. It's important to make an argument against the other side. It's important to defend yourself, to fight back against you know, people who attack you, to also you know launch attacks against other people in terms of your ideas are bad and this is why. But at the end of the day, if you cannot inspire people, then what are you doing? Right, And I think that inspiration is so underrated because we're so cynical that if you go out there and say, oh, it's very important to inspire, you automatically get a whole bunch of people who roll their eyes. But all these pundits and all these writers and all these journalists who are some of the most cynical people of all, as much as they will like make fun of Obama or roll their eyes or or be cynical towards the idea of a politician being inspiring and just say that it's cheesy – those are the same people who that when he gives a truly great speech that is inspiring, that has inspiration in it, they will they will write good stories about him.
2: You mentioned a couple of times Obama saying, like, we need to avoid the cliches. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I mean, maybe the answer to this is just like, that's what good writing is. Right. But when you're trying to tell that, like, story of America, yeah. when you're trying to tell these
1: grand
2: sweeping narrative about him, about his place in the country, about what he's promising and what he's trying to bring how do you avoid being corny you like don't. how do you how, you don't
1: you know you trip over corny cl- clauses statements all the time you try to be as unique as possible i try to find try to tell stories that are like individual people's stories that are different but also you try to avoid the cliche like i met tom in iowa and you know he couldn't afford healthcare um so you really it, it's about working hard to find unique and different stories and unique ways to say to make the same point that people have made for generations and that's tough and you don't always succeed but at least you go into it you go into it with a filter that is keep the cliches away keep the corny statements away then again it's a balance you can't go so far in the other direction that you're afraid to write something because you're thinking oh everyone's going to roll their eyes and they're going to say, oh, there goes Obama again, walking on water, you know, kind of healing the oceans and all that. We're the ones we've been waiting for, all that kind of shit. If you let that get in your head too much, you'll never, you'll never write something inspiring because you'll always be worried about it. So sometimes you have to take the risk.
2: At one point, did you drop that cynicism that you had on November 3rd, 2004, when you're sitting on your parents' couch? It sure sounds like he inspired you.
1: It's funny. I, I loved the 2004 convention speech. But it was when I read Dreams from My Father over Christmas before I met with him for the first time that I thought to myself, if someone can write a book that's this honest about their life, about race, about drug use, about doubts that they've had, mistakes that they've made, and still think that they're going to be a national political figure and like, win elections, I want to I be part of this. Because if, if this if he can do that, I thought to myself, if, th- if he can be that honest, if he can be as honest as he was in dreams for my father about the country and about what we need to do and where we need to go and, and just have this political courage that a lot of other politicians seem to lack, then it will restore my faith in in our system and democracy and yeah. in, in people. And, you know, I don't know if it'll work or not, but I'm excited to try to be part of it. It feels like high stakes. It does feel like I stay. Well, that was it. And I was like, and if this doesn't work, then fuck it. I'm going back <laughs> I'm to law school. <laughs> um, and look, I think you never. I am not someone. I think because I had the that initial experience of the Kerry campaign, I'm not someone who ever was like a total idealist and naive person. Like I'm. I can be cynical at times. I fight it off constantly. I always try to separate skepticism and cynicism. Right. I think skepticism is. Uh, I don't know if this is going to work out. Or i don't think that person's going to vote the right way, or I think that we're going to lose like that's one thing cynicism is everything is so rigged and awful it's not even worth trying that's cynicism and 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 i've I've tried to fight against that as as uh, those feelings as long as i've been in you know working in politics
2: when those speeches start getting a lot of shine,
1: yeah, people start talking about how he's
2: uh he's this kind of like revolutionary right. orator yeah is there Any tension in being, like, the guy behind the guy? Like, did you want some of that shine?
1: People hear me like, of course you did. No, at first I didn't because that's the whole role of a speechwriter. But I remember the first time during the campaign that someone in the New York Times wanted to profile me. And I was like, probably shouldn't do this because you're supposed to be behind the scenes. And they ended up saying, the campaign people well, yes, you're supposed to be behind the scenes, but you're also young and Obama's big thing is the youth vote and, list you know, hearing about why, you know, one of the young people who are on his campaign ended up in this, you know, sort of senior position. I think that would be good. So why don't you go sit down for the interview? And, you know, then you realize that a little goes a long way. You sit down for one New York Times interview and suddenly, like, your life's open and you're out there and you're a public figure. And now, for good or for bad, you're going to get criticized and some people are going to say you're overexposed and some people are going to talk about who you're dating and i mean it, it's all out there and i don't think you can avoid i don't think anyone who's especially today if you are working in politics you're working for a campaign you are almost just as much of a public figure as or or you are a public figure not as much as the candidate but you're a public figure um if you're on tv if you're a spokesperson whoever you are um you are in you're in the spotlight and you are also in the line of fire you can uh, you can get attacked did you like that part of it? No, no. I mean, look, it's nice to see a nice profile about yourself and your parents are proud and it's cool to show all your friends at home, but you know, then you, the criticism isn't always as fun, but then you learn to just ignore it. How? Cause I had a job to do. And the the best piece of advice I ever got was from David Axelrod who told me, you should always take your job seriously. You should never take yourself seriously. And I think I learned how to not take myself seriously um, over the years, and especially in this job. Meaning, someone's going to say you're an asshole. (laughs) Someone's going to say you're a frat boy, misogynist. Someone's going to say all kinds of bad. Someone's going to say your speech sucks. Um, That you're working, you know, that you're you're doing a horrible job, and you just got to let that roll off your back, or you got to joke about it. You're going to make fun of it. You just got to keep going. If someone says someone. You know, who's on your side is saying you're doing a really bad job and you're writing bad speeches, that's criticism I take very seriously. Mm-hmm. Stuff that's related to my job and whether I'm doing a good job or not, um, I, I do care about a lot. But like personal attacks on me, on who I am, like I have a strong enough sense of self now that it doesn't bother me.
2: I mean, I think what you're talking about there is just kind of scope. Mm-hmm. Like, if you are the chief speechwriter for this candidate who kind of comes out of nowhere to become president, like you're just You're gonna just uh, you're gonna be out there, right? Like that's just part of part of the job. Was there a moment where the scope of what you were doing sort of hit you?
1: I think when when he won Iowa, that was a big moment because up until then, I think we all had some kind of notion that maybe this was just something that was in our heads, that he was popular in our heads and that we loved him, but that it wasn't going to translate into votes. That a state that was 99% white was not going to take a shot on this African-American with the middle name Hussein <laughs> and last name Obama who had been a state senator a couple years before yeah. and maybe we were just fucking crazy <laughs> and then I remember exactly where I was and I, I was standing with David Plouffe and Katie Johnson and Robert Gibbs and we were in the small room in a hotel in Iowa and, and I can still hear the NBC music in my head and they're calling the state for Obama and it was just like it was crazy. It's a crazy moment where you're like oh this is real now yeah like this is a this is a thing that's happening this man might become president we might do this and I could see it on his face too and then he went out and he gave that speech in Iowa the victory speech and he did that you know he's with that opening line they said this day would never come it, it sort of all hit me right there and that whole night I remember it was just a blur like watching him deliver that speech getting on the plane to New Hampshire seeing the sort of the amazement in the eyes of the press and the supporters and everyone else it was that's that's when it hit me
2: was it challenging to write about race
1: it was yeah because i really had to i mean i think the skill that i learned from obama more than any other is empathy and the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes to see the world from someone else's eyes who you may have very little in common with And race was obviously something where I did that middle-class white kid from suburban Boston.
2: For those listening at home, you are a white
1: guy. I am a white guy (laughs) Um, and, and young and, you know, could not have been, you know, in, in many ways was very, very different. I think partly because of my education, right. When I had some really great, again, like the, so the Jesuit tradition of where I went to college was all about social justice and putting yourself in other people's shoes and seeing other worlds. And, and so mentally you can try to do that but a lot of it was just learning from obama himself about race i mean he he drove that conversation about race wasn't me so when you think about the race speech that he gave parts i wrote of that race speech were you know the easier sweep of history we stand at this hall in philadelphia and here was the declaration and here are the words we're trying to make real and so like i could do all that stuff that obama could do is you know i can no more disown reverend right than i can my white grandmother like I wasn't going to write that line. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't I was going to tell Barack Obama that he should talk about disowning his white grandmother. <laughs> um, so that was the stuff that came directly from him. But what works about speech writing is once he throws out a line like that, I know he's willing to go there. Right. And so then I might push it there the next time I'm writing something about this because I know he's okay with it. Was he an easy person to push? Like if you wanted him? Yeah, because he's this. He's the, he is someone who is open to every opinion and wants to put himself in other people's shoes and has that sort of empathetic ability so but I would push him in I would push him in more structural ways right like at some point when he was president you're in a bit of a bubble and in a good way you're not watching the news constantly and you're not taking all the feedback constantly and as someone who's in speech writing and also communications in general I'm watching the news all the time right and so Where I would push him is, you know, make it shorter or make it simpler or don't do the professor thing, you know. And then he would push back and say, I totally understand where you're coming from, but we're not going to take shortcuts. We're not going to do cheesy lines. We're not going to do applause lines just because they're applause lines. If I have to make a point that's a little bit longer, but it's an important substantive point to make, I should say it, even if it screws up the speech a little bit. And so we would have these – arguments back and forth did you guys ever like really fight no i mean that's i I guess i said arguments we'd have like debates you know but i would if he made an edit and i didn't like the edit i would go to him and say so i saw that you made this edit here's why i wrote this this way originally and he would say oh okay well the reason i don't like it is because of x or he'd say okay i understand what you were trying to do and go do that but just make this little change so he was like a pretty good boss the best boss i've ever had I mean, it sounds so like, I, of course, I drank the Kool Aid. I'm going to say that. But in eight years of working for him, he never raised his voice at me. He never got angry. He never got impatient. He was always calmer than me. He was always more self assured than I was. He was more confident than I was. I mean, he was just, I think that other people who probably were under the gun on policy decisions and stuff like that might say they've heard him, you know, yell or get angry before. I just, I never, it never happened with me.
2: I feel like one of the hallmarks of a bad boss is like, you never let people get comfortable, you know. Right. Yeah, like you're kind of like ruled by fear a little bit. Never, never. I've heard you say. I mean, I read a bunch of profiles before we talked, and and uh, you say in almost all of them that he was a better writer than you.
1: Oh, of course. I I got to. I learned about speech writing primarily from barack obama i mean that's like the best education that you could possibly get
2: i just i feel like the need to just like uh, pause us for a second that's so insane <laughs> I know.
1: that's so crazy
2: it's like so crazy you learned on the job with the president
1: yes and i learned and i got to learn about policy that way too which was amazing i mean i i never this will like right-wing websites will probably talk about this i never took an economics class <laughs> at holy cross because I had placed out of it from high school, and so I didn't need to take it. So I didn't. My my roommates were like economics majors; I wasn't. And so, financial crisis happens, and we're sitting there in February of two thousand nine, and I'm supposed to write a speech about like credit default swaps and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, Wikipedia. Yeah, no. Well, I had Larry <laughs> just fu- Summers there. Just Larry that. Summers and Christina Romer and Pierre Orzag and Tim Geithner, and they were my teachers. And it Wh- was it worked because if I give if the president gives a speech that goes into Minutia about the housing crisis yeah. and credit default swaps and all that kind of stuff, he has failed. And so I am supposed to be representing like the average American. And I'm and I'm so I'm constantly going back and forth with Summers and Geithner and saying, okay, I get your explanation, but how do we make that simpler and more accessible? And mm-hmm. that was always... How can I understand How can that? I understand that in a way that most Americans can understand that? And it was always a challenge for them because they're these brilliant guys who've studied this forever, but they're not used to communicating in a very simple way to people. So I was sort of the bridge.
2: Where the hell did you get like the confidence to do that?
1: I learned the confidence on the job because I did not, I did not grow up as some super self-confident kid. I was probably more shy than anything else as a child. And I was not like, you know, I was not like the most popular kid in school, running around, beating my chest, big jock. Like I wasn't any of those things. So it's not like I was some super self-confident guy. Um, You know, I was like a little bit more so in college. But you sort of learn on the job when you're in a campaign like that, and you just you don't have time to worry about those things. Mm -hmm. I also was lucky that because I had developed a relationship with Obama that I did so early, a lot of these older, more experienced people that I worked with who certainly thought when I got there, who the fuck is this kid? Why do I have to listen to him? Why should he be in this meeting? I at least always had Obama who understood the importance of writing and the importance of having a, a, a speechwriter around. And someone who knew him. And then someone who knew him say like, no, no, John should be here. Yeah, that's helpful. That that That's why I was able to do it.
2: Let's talk about the Rhodes profile. Sure. Okay, sure, yeah. Maybe we should just say uh, quickly, this yeah. is a piece that ran a couple weeks ago in the New York Times Magazine. Uh, it was a profile of a uh, still white house staffer ben rhodes your friend you're like quoted in it a bunch yeah it's written by david samuels it caused uh quite a
1: stir it caused a kerfuffle there, a serious they say kerfuffle. in washington um samuels had reached out asked me a bunch of questions ben said yeah i'm cooperating with the profile by all accounts it seems like it seemed like david samuels loved ben rhodes and was going to write a really great profile I got the questions about, is he, what do you think about him being like Holden Caulfield? And I was like, what? What are you asking this for? I have no idea what you're talking about. And Ben was like, I remember Ben being like, yeah, he's got this weird thing about catcher in the rye. I don't know. But like, he seemed like he was really into Ben. So I'm like, okay, well, this is going to be one of those profiles. It'll be fine. And the one theme of the profile that did come across early was that it was like Ben not really caring much about what Washington establishment thought, which. I think it's a very fine theme because that was our whole point as a campaign in 2007-2008 is that we were going to – people think we were going to change Washington by like bringing both parties together and that was one part of that promise. But the other part was we're not going to do what Washington tells us to do just because Washington said it was always right. I had also just listened to a podcast that Ben did with Axelrod. I had not yet heard about Ben's whole story about the Cuba opening Mm -hmm. and what he did and all the secret negotiations and like how Ben went to Canada and look – I know Ben's wife. I know that they have, like, a new kid. And, like, the sacrifices Ben has made for this administration to do these things were, like, huge, right? And this is his whole life. And he worked really hard not because, like, he wants all these accolades. He did it because Ben, more than most people, like, deeply believes in these things, deeply believes in diplomacy and deeply believes that we should have opened up relations with Cuba and the Iran deal and all this stuff. So I just listened to that podcast and then I see the profile come out and then I saw the reaction and I was just like devastated for him because, and this is the problem with profiles and the problem with the media is like you don't get an accurate and full picture of someone's life with all the subtlety and nuance and suddenly you are treated just like we treat celebrities and public figures Mm -hmm. where the bad thing you do gets highlighted or the bad thing you say gets highlighted and all the rest of your life... Is ignored and all the other good things you've done is are ignored, and Washington is a particular kind of high school right. <laughs> that is catty like a high school and gossipy like a high school and and so that's all they could talk about for a week because if the, all they do is just navel gaze.
2: But he like he flamed the school. He 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 flamed the school. He flamed the school hard. And it, do you think that he? That was a mistake?
1: Do you think he didn't mean to do that? If he had to do it over again, I'm sure he wouldn't have, like, pointed out that— I mean, the point he was making about the reporters was you used to have, like, very experienced reporters in foreign bureaus all around the world covering foreign policies. Now you have younger people who are on a campaign who jumped right into uh, the White House press corps and were now, because they cut budgets— they don't have the experience of someone who's been in Cairo covering Cairo and so they just they don't know as much that's the like the longer point he's going to make it didn't come off that way in the piece cuz he just said oh they literally don't know anything yeah. and they're 27 yeah well he would admit and all of us would admit we were all young too when we got to the white house and we didn't know a lot i'll tell you ben knew a lot more than most of us because he wrote the iraq study group report and the 911 commission report so right. all this hauling but like ben didn't know much he was a failed novelist like no ben wrote two of the most like critical foreign policy manuscripts Of the last 30 40 years (laughs) so i think he got a good education about foreign policy there certainly more than i did yeah i was much more of a know nothing than him but um it wasn't just that like he wasn't doing that just to just to attack them but to sort of lament the fact that we don't you know that's that's the way the media is these days then he talked about what every white house every politician every candidate does to get their message out um, in order to win an argument about a policy that they believe in, which is they find allies who also believe in what they believe in and ask them to go out and talk about it, <laughs> which right. in the piece was framed as some scandalous thing, but is actually the. M- I don't mo- think it was framed as scandalous. I think it was. Well, fra- that's. I think Samuels would say that he He probably I think after the piece, he was like, well, I don't know what I did that was so scandalous there.
2: Well, I think he framed it as um, those people
1: aren't thinking for themselves. Right. That's Right. That's right. And, of course, they were thinking for themselves. They, were think- they, they ag- happened to agree with the White House's position. So the White House said, oh, you're someone who happens to agree with our position. Would you go out and talk to reporters? Would you go out and talk to people about that? But the problem is, the longer the Ben Rhodes thing – this is what happens with every, you know, every problem that you have in Washington, every like big controversy. The longer it goes, the more thoughtful pieces you get that actually – tell you the real story Mm -hmm. days later you get all these people who write some sensible takes on this but we don't we don't wait for anything anymore in the media people just immediately throw out their takes and you had a lot of people like there was six stories up on the washington post at one point all complaining about this like the washington post doesn't have anything better to do than writes than have six pieces up flaying ben rhodes
2: but earlier you were saying like a thing obama taught you is to fight back I read all that reaction is just like this guy, on his way out of town, crossed the bridge and then like basically without looking, just like chucked a grenade behind him.
1: Yeah. Well, I see. I don't think he. I don't think he thought he was doing that. I think he was attacking the conventional thinking in Washington. You guys came in as
2: like underdogs and upstarts and saying you're going to change right. things, right? But like then you like transferred into the school, mm-hmm. and like you were automatically. Whatever the metaphor is like you were the, automatically the quarterback on the team, and right. the prom king, <laughs> you know, which is like a really comfortable position from which to call everyone else an asshole. Right.
1: <laughs> is I, it? I don't know if it's that comfortable.
2: I guess another way of putting that is to drive back to that quite elegant distinction you made between skepticism and cynicism. Right. That piece he's comes off as cynical.
1: Which is so funny because he's like the least cynical person. But only
2: about D.C. Like if D.C. Right.
1: is a school, he's cynical
2: about the cafeteria. And I guess part of what I'm asking about. Yeah. And I'm interested in it's what fair. you think is like, is there something uh, off about being like the prom king sitting in the cafeteria and holding in disdain? Like you're there. You guys are there. You're at the top of that world. Right. And at the same time sort of from the top, it seems like, at least in that piece. And I've sort of like heard you kind of do a little bit of this on the podcast too, like kind of like look down and you're like, everyone else is on a treadmill.
1: So, you know, what's funny is we never, I guess we never consider ourselves sitting at the top of the heap because ev- like in the white house, right? Well that like, you know, the official position is that, <laughs> but has Barack Obama ever done anything that has gone easy over the last eight years? Where everyone in DC has said, Great job, Mr. President. You are wonderful. You guys up in that White House, we're just going to sit back. We're going to let you do it. You let you handle it. And, and you can just, you can criticize us. You cannot criticize us, but we'll just stay here and watch. No, it's been a battle from day one. It's funny. I remember watching or like reading about, because I was young, the Clinton administration and how bitter it seemed like Clinton was towards the press and towards Washington by the end. Of the administration, and they felt like they were in this foxhole, and they felt like this were they were always attacked. And then I remember the Bush people seeming like that, and I remember like getting a tour of the White House by Bush's chief speechwriter before we came in, and him saying using references like "you're all in the foxhole together here," you know, mm-hmm. "you're all taking and coming," and thinking like, "what is wrong with all these people?" But when you get there, there are days when you have that siege mentality, and I think it is, it is not specific to. Uh, individual personalities, certain partisan leanings. I think anyone who gets into the seat of power, whether you're in the White House, whether you're in Congress, but specifically in the White House when all eyes are on you and the spotlight's on you all day, um, you do have this thing that like every single thing you do, people are critical of. Yeah,
2: Uh, one more question on that front, which is if we're using that definition of skepticism and cynicism, Mm -hmm. do you think that the administration, do you think that your friends there got cynical about DC?
1: Yeah, I guess at times you can feel cynical. I don't think the, the broader outlook is cynicism. It's certainly not the one that I have. Because as much as I complain about DC, and there's plenty to complain about, we got a lot of stuff done. Mm-hmm. And we got a lot of good stuff done. And you couldn't get that done if DC was really as unbelievably terrible as you think it is. And so there are good people in both parties who even though they make a lot of mistakes and sometimes are motivated by self-interest are also motivated by selfless interests. I think that's that's the thing I always try to keep in mind. If we, if, if we can learn to understand people's motivations as complex, so that yes, sometimes they are acting out of self-interest and political self-interest, but sometimes they're not. And people have, just like regular human beings, <laughs> politicians and people in politics have complex motivations. I mean, it's not just black and white all the time? It's not just black and white all the time. And I don't look... I'll say this and be, oh well, you said this and this. Yeah, I fail to do that all the time. Mm-hmm. But I always try to keep that as a North Star. Why'd you leave? I was tired. <laughs> uh I had been I'd been writing for him for eight years, all through my twenties, and I didn't have a real life. And I couldn't plan a real life. I couldn't plan a vacation. I couldn't plan a weekend without worrying that something was going to happen. And I also thought that he deserved, that the president deserved like a fresh voice, fresh set of eyes because I was like, I don't want to be writing the same exact thing for him and just end up writing him shitty speeches because I'm tired of this. And before I start doing that, I want to, I want to leave. And I also, and I didn't want to ever leave him in, you know, I, I wanted to stay through re-election because I think speech writing and communication and a campaign, at least politically, can sometimes matter more than governing. Sometimes not, depends on the issue. And I also wanted to make sure he had a good replacement. And by the time I left, I knew that Cody was ready to take over seamlessly for me. And so that made me feel good about leaving too.
2: I could totally understand being 32, having gone from 26 to 32, working 1000 hour weeks and being like, uh, maybe I should live a little bit, but it's interesting what you're saying about the writing, like getting tired with the writing. Yeah. Was there another kind of writing that you wanted to be doing? Like was, was, they're writing for yourself that you wanted to be doing? There was.
1: No, I only wrote for him and I, and I have a voice of my own and I have opinions of my own and I wanted to write for myself. But I always kind of thought that was selfish and I had this guilt about leaving. And then finally, like, the guilt dissipated when we won re-election and I had thought about being there for eight years. And it was really a lifestyle thing, too. I mean, yeah. like, I didn't have a truly normal relationship in my 20s. You know, I had met someone towards the end of the White House... Who I really cared about, and thought like, if I'm gonna have a real relationship and a real life, and I'm gonna get married someday, and I'm gonna have kids, and like, I can't be at the White House till I'm 35 and be single and not have time for anyone. What was the conversation like when you told him you wanted to leave? It was very easy. He, we were coming back from LA. Uh, we had just seen John Lovett, who was one of our speechwriters, who had left to come to Hollywood. And he said, oh, it was good seeing love it. And he looks happy out there. And I'm like, yeah, he says it's great. And he's writing and he's doing all that. And he goes, you seem like you'd want to do that. <laughs> I said, yeah. He's like, do you know when? When, you, when are you thinking about doing that? And I'm like, well, you know, I wasn't going to pick now to have this conversation, but I was thinking about leaving after the election. And he said, look, selfishly, I want to keep you. But as your friend, like, I want you to have a happy, fulfilled life. And I want you to, you know, you've earned it. Go do it. He's like, just make sure. We have a good replacement, and everything's right. set, and don't leave until then. Don't the, fuck me. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so there was some, but that was May of 2012, and I didn't leave until March of 2013. So there was a good year runway yeah. when he knew. And I was one of the first ones of the original crew to tell him I was going to leave. By the time like it got towards that winter and a bunch of other people jumped on, he gave them a harder time. Because <laughs> right. I think, it's good to be first. Yeah, exactly.
2: So you left, did some screenwriting, and also started writing columns. Yes. If you've been writing for someone else for eight years has it been hard to find your own voice
1: again not as hard as i thought it would be in some ways i'm always going to sound a little bit like my writing's always going to sound a little bit like barack obama not a terrible thing but, well for yeah for better or worse for some to some people um because i was there for eight years which is a long time and also because prior to working for him i actually sort of thought like in Some way, not as brilliantly as him, but I, I thought I had some of the similar thoughts he, that he did it wasn't
2: this huge process to get on his wavelength. You were right there
1: but what i 've learned what i 've tried to do with my writing is I joke around a lot more i don 't like i said i don 't take myself seriously. I try to fool around with cultural references here and there. I can make fun of republicans now and then i 'll make fun <laughs> of the media i 'll do all that kind of stuff because i don 't you know't I don't, I don't have to worry about the position that i 'm in anymore
2: i 'm just me you were saying uh we before talking about the administration, yeah. do you feel more a part of that or do you feel more a part of the media now?
1: I mean, like we're sitting in Def- the ringer's office. You're a columnist for the ringer. It's funny. I definitely still feel, I still feel more. It's, I don't feel like part of the administration really, but I feel more like uh, a guest mm-hmm. <laughs> in the media. You know, I don't feel like I'm a part of the media right now. Clearly, as much as I've criticized the media in the past, I feel this, I I feel drawn to it. Why? Because I think part of my, part of my criticism of the media is because I think it's so important. And I think that journalism has such an important role in our society. And I think it's undervalued and underestimated. Like we spend a lot of time talking about politics and what's wrong with politics and what's good with politics and what politicians are doing bad and what they're doing right. And we don't spend as much time actually analyzing journalism and media, even though that's how people get their information about the world and about politics, right? I mean, it's. I look at these these polls, right? If you ask people, are you happy with your life? Are you happy with your finances? Are you happy with your, your personal finance, your personal life, stuff like that? The ratings right now, the approval ratings are pretty high. Higher than they've been in a long time, both on people's finances and on how happy they are and how things are going in their own life. When you ask people about how they feel about the direction of the country, it's has been at all-time lows since from like early Bush years through today. And I don't think that has to do with one party or the other. I think you have to ask yourself, well, how, what, how do people process what the world is like and how they should feel about the world and how they should feel about the direction of the country? Well, they process that from watching the news and from reading the news. And over the years, that has gotten more negative and more cynical. And I think that's a challenge. And I don't think that's the fault of any individual reporter or any individual journalist. But I think there's a systemic issue there um, that has to do with the media that we we should talk about.
2: Being on the other side and mm-hmm. thinking as much as you guys did about narrative and how the media is going to play narrative, uh, where the holes are, where those weaknesses are that you're describing. Like, is there is there something that you learned in your time in the White House that's informing the way that you're writing columns now? Like, are you, are you trying to correct for something that you saw
1: there? Puncturing the the bullshit is important and i think there's plenty of people in the media that uh, call out bullshit on politicians and there's not a lot of people who are calling out bullshit on the media and there's also some bullshit that politicians do that's left <laughs> that's left out there yeah. you know and so i think we try to do that too i am fine with going being out there and saying i support hillary and i want hillary to win for very obvious reasons if you know me <laughs> and i've written columns about why i want hillary to win but i certainly don't think She's perfect. You've spent some time thinking about her weaknesses. Yeah. I've spent plenty of time thinking about her weaknesses and I'll talk about those, you know, Um, but I'll also, I guess what I'm trying to go for is cutting out the bullshit, but also injecting some subtlety and nuance, um, which you don't get much of these days and you can do in a podcast or you can do in a column, right? Mm -hmm. You can say, I, we ran against Hillary Clinton thinking that she was too political, too cautious, too calculating. And at the time we really thought that, and here's how our view evolved. And it wasn't just like political. Oh, now we need to back her. There's still times where I think she comes off as too cautious and calculating, but I have a more complex, nuanced view of her where I give her a lot more credit than I used to. And that's the truth, you know? And so it's like, I think it's trying to arrive at a truth that acknowledges people's mistakes and flaws and weaknesses and acknowledges the bullshit that's out there, but still sort of arrives at a place where you have this more complex view of someone's motivations. How does it feel to be on the sidelines? It's funny, the first year I was out here, I was very happy to not be involved in politics and to just go about my day. And now I I can't, I can't be on, I can't quit. <laughs> and I think that's gonna, like going forward, I just think the the podcast, the column, whatever else, I I need an outlet to talk about politics because for better or worse, this is what I care about. And this is what I'm gonna care about my whole life. Like when people think about what makes you passionate, this is what gets me up. And gets me excited every day is trying to persuade people and argue for policies that would, you know, make a difference in people's lives. As cheesy and cliche as that sounds, you know, that's the ultimate end goal. And the more selfish goal is I'm a competitive person who likes to, you know, mix it up once in a while. So so both of those things together keep me in this business.
2: Hearing you say that, it sounds like uh, you're not done.
1: I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't like... God, I do not want to move back to Washington. I do not think I'll do that. I do not want to jump on another campaign. I don't want to be sitting in a government job. Like, I know these things to be true right now. But I've also learned to, like, focus on what you love doing and not what you want to be. Um, and so I haven't really thought about what the, what the job I want down the road is, what I want to be. I just, like, what do I love doing? I love coming in here and doing the podcast once a week. I love writing about politics once in a while. I love arguing about it on Twitter. I love... Sometimes going on TV to talk about it when it's not like a typical annoying cable show, you know So i'm gonna keep doing those things and see wherever that takes me.
2: think you could love running for office
1: I I don't I don't know. It's weird. I thought about it when I was I thought about it when I was young And then seeing it up close and seeing what it takes. It's like first of all it it's made me appreciate So much the people who do it and the people who make those sacrifices and I don't know if I'm too self centered to make that kind of sacrifice. Like I feel sometimes I feel like I should, in like few, if I really believe these things, I should go do it. And then I'm like, oh god, <laughs> the raising the money, the like going out there, and I mean that's it's so hard. And you open yourself up to criticism and your family, and it's your whole life. And I have a comfortable life now where I can get involved in politics, talk about it, write about it, but then step back and go hang out with my girlfriend and my friends and live a normal life and go to dinner and not worry about it and being in politics running for politics is all-consuming and you have to be prepared for that and that's just you know more power to the people who do <laughs> it
2: sounds like a maybe to me
1: uh, uh, it's, it's a it's a probably a almost certainly not <laughs> but, but 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 um at least from where i am right now there's nothing that makes me want to do that
2: what about writing what are your aspirations in writing
1: I like the style of writing that I do right now because I like being done with something in 1,500 words or 800 words. Uh, I am a very frustrated writer. I'm someone who will procrastinate till the very end. I'll stay up till 3 in the morning to finish a column. And every time I go to do it, I'm like, why do I write? I don't know. I, I was saying this to <laughs> Still. John Lovett and I had this conversation the other day because he's working on something too. And he was like, why do we do this to ourselves? It, you, you feel bad about yourself. You procrastinate you feel miserable you stay up late you you rush things at the end but when you the feeling you get when you finish something and you're proud of something that you've written you know and that you've you've said something and you've argued something that is different or new or entertaining or persuasive that's such a good feeling that you're like okay i'll dive back in and then like next week i'll be probably writing another ringer column or the week after and i'll be like fuck i should just not have done this i hate this <laughs> so i have a love-hate relationship with writing but you're which i'm still, sure most writers do but you're still chasing it still chasing it that was another thing too is I, I realized i wouldn't be able to not write um if i was just someone who was talking about politics and not putting my thoughts on paper in a way that's more eloquent than i can speak you know then there'll be something missing
2: hey john thanks a lot man
1: thanks this was great
2: Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our intern this week, Courtney Harrell. Thanks very much to our sponsors, Audible, Squarespace, FreshBooks, and MailChimp. Go check out their new store, Freddy & Co. Freddyand.co. They got great stuff in there, and it supports a good cause. Those guys are always doing great projects, and uh, we thank them for their support. Thanks also to John Favreau for taking the time. That was a... Really fun conversation, and I should also say thanks to the people at The Ringer. Joe Fuentes was uh, kind enough to record that, and Sean Fennessy, the editor, gave me his office for two hours on day two of his website. That seems like uh, maybe in hindsight a bad decision. We'll see you next week.
3: I don't want to do your dirty work no
2: more. All right, speed question. Putting you on the spot Uh right now. November 2016, who wins? Hillary. She Lock guarantee? Does. No, not guarantee.
1: <laughs> you asked me what <laughs> I No, absolutely no guarantee. Can you give
2: me some like odds on the board? I, how terrified should I be right now? Uh,
1: I think you should be thirty percent terrified. Okay, which, that's enough. <laughs> Fucking terrifying. Let's go, everyone, go vote. Unless you hate Hillary Clinton, then don't vote. <laughs> I'm. That's it. That's my final parting words to people. Do not vote. Just kidding. I'm just kidding.
0: <laughs> why do you run? Why does anyone?